The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Amplifier Advisors, LLC, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Hey there, it's Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for taking some time and joining us. This week's show brings together various avenues into entrepreneurship, both for-profit and not-for-profit, and raises the question as to why people are not more engaged in what they do on a daily basis. Andrew Sherman is an author here in town. He's been an entrepreneur for a long time. He's going to talk about his new book about disengagement in the workforce, very illuminating conversation. Matt Howard is an entrepreneur with a company called Sonotype. He's chief marketing officer, and he's been part of the entrepreneur community here in D.C., and he'll argue why it is that this is the best place to start a software company in the United States. And people start social enterprises here on a regular basis. An emerging trend, Liz Norton is the founder of Stone Soup Films, a very innovative way to bring creatives into contact with not-for-profit and social venturing organizations to help them communicate their important messages to gather resources and accomplish big things. This is a great example of why What's Working in Washington is a place to come for the best spectrum of innovation, opportunity, and entrepreneurship in one place. In other words, our show mirrors the very essence of the community we cover. Washington, D.C. is a place where people come to change things. People come for positive reasons, and they stay because this is a great place to do business and be creative and innovative. And that's what's in store for you in this episode of What's Working in Washington. There is a significant and emerging issue in today's workforce that may in fact be holding our economy back more than any single condition. To talk about this phenomenon is Andrew Sherman, author, professor, and attorney, a longtime part of the D.C. entrepreneur community. Andrew has recently released a book entitled The Crisis of Disengagement, and we're going to talk about this significant issue. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Uh, It's great to be here and uh, great to be on the show. Congratulations with... uh how the show has done so far. Well, it's only going to get better with you uh, joining us. So (laughs) disengagement, you've been around entrepreneurship here in the D.C. region for three more decades now. You've helped start countless companies Uh, as an advisor. You're a professor of entrepreneurship. Why do you turn your attention to disengagement? It seems so counterintuitive to me. Well, it tell you, it's kind of think about a three-legged stool. Uh, Two books ago, I wrote a book called Essays on Governance, and I was concerned post Sarbanes-Oxley about you know boards not being uh, committed to protecting their fiduciary duties of the shareholders and doing the things that we learned as lawyers that they have to do. Then I did a book called Harvesting Intangible Assets about you know the need to innovate more in the company and monetize intangible assets. And then what I realized this was the epiphany moment is that you can't do any of those things if your culture and your people are disengaged. And so, in a way, this book kind of completes the triangle and says, look, you've got to have great governance, you have to have a culture of innovation, but quite frankly, if your people aren't engaged, you're not going to have any of those things. Now, governance is is the shorthand that lawyers use to describe a company that is well-managed for the benefit of the stockholders. Innovation clearly is something we've talked about throughout the show. It comes, it, It's so closely tied to entrepreneurship. Those are both really positive things. You're telling me that as you've done your research and as you've talked with business leaders in town, you get the sense that there is a disconnect between what management thinks the company is about and what the workers actually think the company is about. Very much so. That's extremely well summarized. I mean, think about it this way. 
No disengaged, apathetic, complacent worker is bouncing around in bed at night at 3 in the morning thinking, how can I make my job better? How can I make the company better? How can I service the client or the customer better? And that's the problem. And if, I, if, if it's okay, let me share with you some of the data that comes right out of the Gallup State of the American Workplace study. It's alarming. And, and it's actually reading that study four years ago. It just got updated in December of 16. So the data in the update isn't in the book because the book had just come out. But here's the breakdown. 4%, 4 out of 100 people describe themselves as highly engaged. These are the people that are going the extra mile that everybody wants to hire and retrain and recruit and advance in the company. 25% describe themselves as engaged. These are the people that, you know, the solid B-plus come in. Every once in a while they do something good. But for the most part, they're just looking to get paid, get their bonus, and move on to the next job as soon as it comes along. 51% describe themselves as disengaged. They come in. They're like the zombies of the workforce. That means half the people in the studio are disengaged. And then the number that really shocks you, the number that grabs you by the hair and doesn't let go, is 20% describe themselves as actively disengaged. These are the saboteurs of, of our society. These people not only are very unhappy at their jobs and hate their bosses, but they want you to be unhappy in their jobs and hate their bosses. And that's one out of five workers. We're trying to stay competitive in a global marketplace. We're trying to keep the D.C. region rich for entrepreneurship and innovation and business growth. And we've got one out of five people who actively are disengaged. That can't continue, Jonathan, if we're going to you know, do what we need to do as a country. So over the last couple of weeks, we've covered as themes on our show uh, significantly millennial workforce and also artificial intelligence and its application to the workforce. And the, the emerging theme in both, without question, is that millennial workers and workers in general want to be engaged. And companies really need to be focused on how they apply technology exactly. and how they create structures to reward people. Millennials, for example, we learned uh, last week or a few weeks ago that most millennials in this town will leave a job within a year. It's it's Absolutely. incredible. It's sure. so, and, and, and they rate uh, uh, quantitative reward as fourth, fifth, or sixth in the things that they look for in a new opportunity. I mean, yes, money's important, but being aligned with the mission and values of the company, feeling like they're part of something bigger than themselves, feeling like there's a chance for peer recognition and training and mentoring, all, I mean, I have a 27-year-old and 25-year-old. They both, we talk intimately about this stuff, and they both tell me that, you know, money's not the driver. It, it's all those other non-quantitative things. And by the way, one big... Um, uh, one big misunderstanding that I found in my research on this book, it's not just the millennials who are disengaged. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of 50-somethings and 60-somethings still in the workplace, still looking to find their true selves. In our profession, the level of disengagement of 40 and 50-something partners who you know, are sort of bound into you know, accounting and law and other professions and can't leave because they're financially trapped is growing. And, you know, let me ask you this. If you had a big piece of litigation that was a bet the company piece of litigation, do you want one of the 20 percent highly disengaged law partners handling your matter? Uh, I don't think so. Right? No, probably not. <laughs> yeah, any probably more than not. I would. I would want anybody disengaged working with men anyway, because clearly right. when people are engaged, they're they're fighting hard for their own career and for you. And they're up at night thinking about you. Well, so we've identified this problem. And, and I agree with you. First of all, what are the conditions to create this? Is, is this a societal problem? Is it the ubiquity of social media? Are people overwhelmed and exhausted? What is your? What do you attribute this to? So, 
in the most recent update to the State of the American Workplace, the CEO of Gallup says something very eloquent that really resonated with me. And he said, look, if we're going to really fix this problem in our country, we need to break down what we think the current definitions of management leadership are and replace them with new styles. For example, instead of referring to someone as your boss, you know, how about the coach, the mentor, the catalyst? I mean, that's what everybody wants. They want to be coached. They want to feel like they're the player on a star team and that they've got the greatest coach in the world who's going to help them just get better and better and knows what the plays are in the playbook to get the team to win. And we need to bring more of that mindset into the leadership of companies, whether they're high-tech, low-tech, in the D.C. region, outside the region, inside the federal government. I mean, oh, my God. The level of apathy and complacency inside our government agencies is incredibly high, probably higher than the norm in the workplace study. What's interesting about that is that your research shows that engagement is driven by qualitative factors rather than quantitative, meaning it's not about the money, it's about enjoying your work. That Completely. would suggest that the federal government, the, the principles of changing the way people think about work are just applicable. Tell our leaders and our, our business owners amongst our listeners a few specific things that they could do to create more of a culture of engagement with their employees and consultants? So, you know, uh, I'm a big Terp, and uh, go Terps on the Big Ten tournament. There was a professor in the 60s and 70s that wrote a lot about this notion of mattering. Uh, mattering was both a philosophical and a business concept that I talk, talk about uh, briefly in the book, but I uh, would love to you know, expand on that research. And at the end of the day, people want to matter. They want to feel like their lives matter. I talk about this in the how was your day, honey, test, right? Everyone wants to go home and have something exciting to tell their spouse or their children about how their day was. So as leaders of companies, we need to walk a mile in that employee's shoes through empathy, uh, through compassion, and say, what can I do that advances the interests of my shareholders, but also makes that employee's day something that they're excited to go home and tell their family about? And if we can do that, start with that one little incremental step, I think the ripple effect of that will be significant. Important lessons and guideposts for all of us involved in business and entrepreneurship and the federal government here in the D.C. region. Check out The Crisis of Disengagement, written by our friend Andrew Sherman. Andrew, thanks for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. When people discuss entrepreneurship in the D.C. region, a recurring question that's asked is, where are all the people that know how to grow and market software product companies? It turns out there is a large community here, and we are joined by a person who's a great example of that. Matt Howard is Executive Vice President Chief Marketing Officer at Sonotype, a startup here in town. Matt, thanks for taking some time to join us. What Thanks, Jonathan. Up, all right, what are you up to? What is Sonotype up to, and what does a marketing guy do at a company like Sonotype? Uh, Sonotype is a company, uh, the CEO is Wayne Jackson, who previously had uh, a company locally here uh, called Sourcefire, which mm -hmm. many people might be familiar with. Very successful exit. It's ultimately bought by Cisco. Large deal. Yep, yep, large deal. Well, uh, this time around, we are basically uh, helping software development organizations build uh, software better, faster, cheaper. And specifically, what we do is we provide... Uh, the equivalent of FDA food labeling on open source components. So as a consumer, you know, making a decision with respect to what you eat, you have the benefit of a food label that says there's this much sugar, this much fat, or this much it's organic or it's gluten-free or it's not. Similarly, we've created a database that allows development organizations to see on top of an open source component, this one is secure, it's properly licensed, it's popular, it's older, it's newer, et cetera, et cetera, so that you can basically make 
really good, healthy choices with respect to the open source components that you're assembling into your software application. Open source software is very important for all new businesses. It's where a lot of innovation occurs, and by its nature, it's it's freely available. The challenge for businesses, if you use open source software, you may not be predictable in how it works, and also there may be licensing issues. So this is a big challenge that you're describing. Security issues as well. Mm, that's true. And as we think about this, and as you describe it, this is the kind of business that I think many people would expect would be developed in a place like North Carolina where Red Hat is or out in Silicon Valley or Austin where Xenos is. Why, why is this business here? Uh, great question. And in fact, the company was originally started uh, on the West Coast in the Valley. Uh, and ultimately, when uh, the investors came into the business, uh, Excel and NEA and, and Goldman Sachs, uh, Wayne came along with those investors and ultimately moved the company here to well, Washington, D.C. So this is an example where an experienced entrepreneur, Wayne, uh, is joined by you and other experienced entrepreneur and others that have expertise building product companies. And a lot of big money is behind this company that's located here in the D.C. region. So that runs counter to the view that many out of region have, which is that this isn't a place where entrepreneurs can start great software companies. So how do you attract people to come to work with you from around the country? What's your sales pitch? One of the things we do that's a little bit different with respect to our engineers and our development organization, it is virtual. I mean, we've got uh, 130 plus employees. Our engineering team is uh, the, the lead architect and the senior leadership team for engineering is based here. But uh, the actual uh, day-in, day-out software development is done by individuals around the world. Uh, so we're hiring W-2 engineers who are at home developing software, and they can live wherever they want. That that actually helps with recruiting. Um, back to your point about sort of uh, companies locally here, um, we've got a rich history in Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia with respect to really interesting software innovation. And uh, so if you've been in this bit town for, you know, 20 years, you've seen some great companies and, you know, the network of, of people who have been there done that, so to speak, is not small. And it's not really ultimately that difficult to put a great team of management together. So the, the history of Silicon Valley really does begin with uh, Fairchild Semiconductor out of Shockley Electronics. And that sprung, I think, uh, somebody once estimated 800 semiconductor companies, companies like Intel, for example. So the phenomenon of, of founders growing and starting businesses, exiting them and starting them again, is something that people are pretty familiar with. I think that the the Sonotype story and Threat Connect and other companies here in town uh, all have in common the pedigree of SourceFire yep. as, as a successful and growing company. Do you think that exits like SourceFire, companies like Tenable and uh, Invincia being sold and so forth, are, are we at the beginnings of or in the middle of a really strong indigenous cybersecurity industry here? I, I would say, yeah. And at the same time, I'm not sure it's just cyber. I mean, I think that there's uh, good ideas that um, exist in software. I mean, today, uh, companies across the globe are you know competing and winning on the playing field because of software innovation. And uh, there's smart people all over the place. I think Washington has a core group of smart people who, yes, are doing cyber, but it extends beyond cyber. And when they're successful in cyber or whatever industry they're developing, um, you know, the exits happen and the, those those people, you know, tend to go and uh, look for another good idea and, you know, build build a great company again. This is Wayne's third company. I mean, to be clear, his first company was Riverbed, which also had a very, very right. successful exit. And then he did SourceFire. And so this is the third time at the plate. As you look outward at the opportunity set, is open source and what you're doing 
applicable to government, it would seem that there's an awful lot of opportunity for cost savings or taking advantage of the open source movement. I saw, for example, NASA just open sourced a bunch of technology. Are you working with the government in this business, or is this a commercial business? It is uh, both. Uh, we're, we're definitely, uh, you know, we don't discriminate. And the good news for us and our, our market is that, uh, as I said, men, as I mentioned before, I mean, the, the pressure to innovate software for every organization, every organization in the world, whether they know it or not, is in fact a software company. I mean, at the end of the day, innovation is what these companies do in order to compete and win, and that innovation comes from software. Um, Airbnb, as an example, Tesla, as an example, I mean, Netflix, as an example, these are all software companies at their core, and they've come out of nowhere in the blink of an eye to disrupt industries that you know, existed for decades or even hundreds of years before it in the hospitality case. So, uh, you know, software is being built by everybody in the government, in commercial markets, and anyone who's building software is consuming a massive amount of open source. I mean, to give you some context, uh, we are the curators uh, of, of, a, of a repository which makes Java open source components available to developers around the world. Uh, it's called the Central Repository. Last uh, Two years ago, there were uh, 17 billion Java components requested from Central Repository. Last year, it was 32 billion. This year, it's 52 billion. So the consumption of open source is is growing exponentially every year. It's not just Java either. It's JavaScript. It's all sort of formats. Uh, there is an insatiable appetite among software developers to consume open source because there is an intense pressure from shareholders and CEOs on these development teams to produce and innovate faster, better than ever. Mm -hmm. And when you're basically under that intense pressure, you need to basically take advantage of componentized software. And the componentized software that's going to get you to the end line faster is open source. At the end of the day, when people talk about the world becoming flatter for technology, they're really talking about this trend. Yeah. I mean, innovation and automation eats the world. Well, at least while it's being eaten, Matt Howard, you and your friends at Sonotype will win. <laughs> like we're, certainly, uh, we're certainly doing our part. We're playing hard. Well, another great entrepreneurial story here in the D.C. region. Matt Howard, EVP and CMO of Sonotype. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jonathan. When people talk about Washington, D.C., they often think about politics and Congress. What is not as often appreciated is how entrepreneurial this community is. Many people talk about it from the context of for-profit businesses. The reality is, is creativity is everywhere in our economy. To discuss this and bring us up to speed on some very interesting changes in the creative economy here is Liz Norton. She is a founder of Stone Soup. Thanks for taking some time. So happy to be here. It's the best business name ever. I love the story of Stone Soup. It's a great, it's a great tale. How does that relate to the business that you're doing? It's completely connected to the business because we, the communications and film and all that we do are completely collaborative. So just like the old folk tale, you can't do anything on your own. You know, soldiers came, they were hungry, everybody contributed, and ev the entire village feasted on a soup they never could have made on their own. That's completely what we do at Stone Soup. Everybody from graphic designers to animators to editors to assistant editors to producers and camera operators everybody pitches in to make something that individually they never could have made on their own every one of those person every one of those job titles you just described I would not have thought for a moment that you had that kind of talent here in D.C. Oh, compl uh, completely. I moved here from New York. I was the biggest chip on my shoulders. Like, there's no pickles and there's no editors. You know, I just was completely <laughs> obnoxious. I never thought I'd find out an editor at Katz's Deli in I New know, York. I know. It but... was like, and so for me, I, I was never, I mean, this is my hometown. So I came back and I was completely, I had such a jaded view of the city as 
being so staid and government related. And I had a, a you know production career in Manhattan, and so of course I thought I was you know vastly superior. Of course, all New Yorkers do. Yes, and so when I started Stone Soup, I was hoping you know for fifteen or so volunteers. I thought that would be sort of like the sweet spot, and it was kind of I was insufferable at parties. I just was like everybody, and I was like, do you know anyone who's a camera operator, an editor, a producer? I mean, I just was the most intolerable person. And then turns out. I was so wrong because uh, this the 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 creative economy in D.C. is unbelievable is just thriving. I mean, it's it's the biggest growing sector within the district right now. So what what ended up being hoping for fifteen ended up being in the course of several years hundreds and hundreds. We almost have seven hundred volunteers now in the industry. Oh, so what supported the the accumulation of that uh, of this this expertise? Now I know that the local theater scene is surprisingly strong, and people don't realize that. I mean, Arena Stage and what Molly Smith's doing there, for example, just one example, Signature Theater. I mean, there's you know, Wooly great, Mammoth. Wooly Mammoth. There's great stuff going on. But where does where does the industry come to support uh, these creatives? You know, there's a deep, dark secret here is that actually the government makes a lot of video. I mean, think about all the different sectors of the government that have to do communications, but they're very procedural, like they're how to's. And like if you go to get like, for example, if you do jury duty. You go sit there in jury duty, and there's a video that shows you what is jury duty and how do you do it. And somebody had to make that. Mm. So there's a huge industry here of procedural sort of how-to kind of training videos, industrials. But what those people don't get is creative freedom in their work. So there's this catnip at Stone Soup Films where we – because we partner with nonprofits and we produce and donate those films to nonprofits for free – the the trade-off that we make with the organization is if you get a, a film for us for free, you don't get editorial control over that project. You have to defer and have faith in us. We do a deep look at what you're doing, but we then say, okay, thank you so much, and then you don't see the film until it's finished. So all of our volunteers who are stuck in a lot of these jobs that were nor normally what you think of would be Washington, sort of, you know, re regular kind of industrial work, um, have unbelievable creative freedom. And I think they're wanting to burst out. There's so many talented people in the city who have incredible vision and want to tell these stories and care a lot about their community. I mean, I always say that people walk through our door, not only are they creative, but they're engaged in a civic way. They want to do service work in their field. So just like, you know, lawyers have been leveraging pro bono for so long, why can't why can't a camera operator leverage pro bono? Leverage the power of their creativity. I, there's no reason why they couldn't as long as there was a network available to help connect them, right? right? So, so there comes Stone Soup. So we just provided this platform with a tiny, wiry staff and really scrappy. We provided this platform for people to come together. Sound entrepreneurial to me. The not-for-profit community here, it strikes me, it's, again, unappreciated for how entrepreneurial it is. What are you seeing uh, in the local not-for-profit and social venturing scene? Is it active and where is it active? You know what? I, this is the most moving and incredible thing about this city is that when you look at all of the problems, look, any urban area, Washington, D.C. has a share of problems. And, you know, the city is extremely divided. Most sides of the people, you know, most sides of the city that you go east of the river. It's just a, it's like another planet. Why is that? What is that about? But and you, it can be very overwhelming. So if you're a well-intentioned person, the too muchness of it is so discouraging. But if you peel back the layers 
everybody who cares a lot about their community is taking a tiny piece of it. So someone is taking the like early child literacy. Someone is taking the, you know, inmates coming out and being reabsorbed into the system. Somebody is taking the struggling high school readers issue. Somebody is taking the diaper bank, you know, that there weren't enough diapers. Like everybody is taking their little piece of whatever their interest is. And those are the people who come through our doors. Recently, I had an opportunity to uh, talk with uh, an author who just finished writing a book about disengagement in our society Mm -hmm. and suggested that employers are doing an absolutely terrible job of creating a reason for people to come to work. Do you think that in some ways people are finding meaning in their lives more and more through social venturing and engagement in that way? That is really interesting. I think that... Meaning in work is a very is un, extremely undervalued in the corporate world. I think that there is, especially in this next generation, you know, most of the people who work in our office are between 20 and 30. I have never seen it is so different from when I was in when I was in that was, you know, it, having meaning in their work is so important that they're willing to live in a group house and eat ramen so that they can come to work and have value in their day. And I think that you, when you're even when you're lo- looking at the more sort of corporate structure, incentivizing having your employees come work for you and like to work there and stay there is extremely valuable for the employers. Absolutely. Now, give us an example, because this sounds very intriguing to me, and I want our listeners to really get this. Is there a, a recent documentary or product that somebody can go look at uh, on the web or elsewhere to get a sense of how this all comes together. Yeah, I mean, I have it's asking. It's like asking me to pick my favorite child. Oh, I'm which sorry, I would never but that's do. what I have to do. Uh, but uh, there are so many. First of all, we are what I call issue agnostic, which means it doesn't matter what you're doing as long as you're helping people in Washington. So you can't be a national organization that has a local office here. So let's say I think I mentioned the diaper bank. That's a great example. Um, Corinne Cannon was a DC you know, DC resident. She was had a regular job. She had a baby. And um, had an extremely difficult time with that child. And she was married and she had this terrible night where she wanted to do something very violent to her child. And she was so wigged out and freaked out about it that the next morning she woke up and said, I have to quit my job and think about what do single mothers need? And she found out that D.C. was one of the few cities in the in the nation that did not have a diaper bank. She went to all these frontline agencies and they said, we desperately need diapers. They're not covered by women. Wick. They are considered a luxury item, which is ridiculous. So she started a a diaper bank totally out of nothing. And it's this unbelievable, they've given away millions of diapers. She serves frontline agencies and they use it as a gateway to get people to do better nutrition for their kids and better literacy and better, you know, get them enrolled in Head Start. And it's just a wonderful example. So the film that we made for the diaper bank, they never could have made that on their own. They didn't know how they had to, they have to rely on donations. You know, she was like standing at Whole Foods trying to tell people about it. I mean, these people need communications help. They are so good at what they do, but they don't know how to tell their story. People tend to think about not-for-profits as being very traditional, top-down organizations, yet there seems to be a lot of innovation occurring in social venturing here in D.C., right? We are seeing incredible innovation from nonprofits for the same reason that D.C. has that alchemy of higher education and people who are higher achieving and people who are drawn here by public policy and making the world a better place or whatever that means is 
filtering down into the nonprofit sector. So you have organizations that are the unique, the only one of its kind. And we're seeing so many of them across the board, you know, uh, uh, from a bike shop that's teaching kids how to make and then they keep a bike at the end. And it's also training them to sort of work on develop their own entrepreneurial skills to all different kinds of, you know, if there's food issues, uh, they're teaching kids nutrition. And these are unique models. And this is very unusual to Washington. And I think it's I think it's one of the most exciting things going on. In the city it runs right completely counter to the image that most people have of D.C. being in a place where innovation doesn't happen. So now you know, if you are an entrepreneur in the social venturing or not-for-profit space and you need help telling your story, there's a resource for you at Stone Soup. And if you're a creative and you're looking for a way to be more creative and make a difference, you want to also seek out Liz Norton, founder of Stone Soup. Liz, what a wonderful opportunity to learn about an organization that's entrepreneurial and making a big difference. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm Jonathan Aberman, my producer Tracy Madigan. We remind you to follow us at, at What's Working DC. See you next time. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington, the power to get things done. Download this show or any of our weekly programs at federalnewsradio.com. What's Working in Washington, Monday afternoons at 2.30 on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 a.m.